0: What is the book of Nehemiah about? It is about building the walls of Jerusalem in the 5th century BC. That is not uh, an answer to the question that is likely to hook many people into a series on Nehemiah. It is about the physical rebuilding of the walls after the exile, But it's much more than that. It's about the people of God gathering together, once again, under the authority of the Word of God. It's about the people of God gathering together to confess sin. It's about the people of God renewing their covenant, their commitment to be faithful, obedient followers of God. It is, therefore, a book about spiritual reformation or the recovery of lost things amongst the people of God. After a period of decline, turning from him in his word, Nehemiah leads God's people back to God, to his word, to confession of sin, and to covenant uh, renewal. Now, what's the message of the book? I've written it out on the sheets for you to see. The message of the book is to God's people in whatever generation to reflect on God's gracious, deliverance, God's kindness, his faithfulness to them, and to prayerfully, once again, come under the authority of his word and to work strategically and with vision for spiritual reformation. So in whatever generation we live, to work for the renewal and the recovery of what has been lost in the church of Christ in our time. So how does it relate to us? Look out this morning, to the spiritual state of this country and this city, and look in primarily to your own lives and to our own heart as a church family. Roger spoke about training a new generation of ministers because you cannot be sure that if you go into a church on a Sunday in this city or in this country, you will hear the gospel. In fact, the chances are you won't the chances are you will hear something altogether different and the authority of the word of God will not be there. As we look out and look in, it is a fair assessment that sin and disobedience of God's word have left the church in Scotland at a pretty low ebb. and We are in need of spiritual reformation, the recovery of the key marks of the church. Reformation is not something we look back to. This year is the 500th anniversary of the start of the Great Reformation in Europe when under people like Luther and Calvin, the gospel, repentance for the forgiveness of sins was recovered and the church was freed of all the clutter and mess that was never meant to be there. One big danger is that this year we get stuck in the past looking back. And nor is Reformation for the future. It's not the next generation who will pick up the baton and seek to reform the church. And nor is the Reformation for somebody else. The Reformation is always for every generation now and for us to do what we can do. And the need in our country today and in this city is urgent. Chapter 1. Nehemiah, in his day, saw what was needful. He saw that Jerusalem needed rebuilding. The application to us, I guess, is that the kingdom of God needs rebuilding in our time. He saw it, and he felt it. So what do you do when you see something and feel it in your heart as a Christian? Well, just think of what we just prayed for. When I describe to you what has happened, did you not feel it in your heart? of course you did when we look out on the spiritual state of scotland or the city or the sin in our own lives we see it but when we feel it then we pray to god about it it's a striking thing see it feel it pray but having prayed nehemiah chapter 2 gets up gets in his horse and surveys the walls. He works strategically and with vision in his day to seek to rebuild the church, the people of God. Chapter three is about partnership. He's not a lone ranger leader. He embraces the whole people of God in the work. Now, if you glance at chapter three, um, I'm not going to read it for obvious reasons all because it's got all sorts of unpronounceable names. I'm going to read 12 verses of it that will have a go, and the pronunciation of my Hebrew names will be entirely different from the first service. Let the reality of this, this is real stuff, real people, real life. It's not made up. Let me read verses 1 to 12, follow along. In your Bibles. Then Eliasib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its stores. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to him, Zachar the son of Imri built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its stores, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Meremoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakos, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Banner, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Joadiah, the son of Passiah, and Meshulam, the son of Bessariah, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Merenothite, the men of Gibeon and Mispa, the seat of the governor in the province beyond the river. Next to them Uziel, the son of Harahiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them Jediah, the son of Harumph, That's the best name, isn't it? Harumph. Nobody here called Harumph. Apologies. Repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Malkidjah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Parthamoab, repaired another section of the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Now, there's a flavor for you. Of the chapter. Now, the notes on the service sheets. You'll see the first heading I've got is Partnership. Nehemiah is a great leader, and God raises up uh, leaders. Nehemiah was a prayerful and humble man, and so God could trust him. He was a visionary and a strategic thinker but he was not a lone ranger. A mark of effective spiritual leadership is always motivating and enabling others. And so his vision was to work in partnership with others, sharing the work according to different people's gifts. So if you think back to chapters 1 and 2, the rhetoric begins with, I, Nehemiah, But by the end of chapter 2, the whole people of God are saying, let us rebuild the walls. For Nehemiah, the leader, has shared with the people the urgent needs of his day. And he has said to them, all of us are called as God's people to share in the work of rebuilding, spiritual reformation. And the principle here is partnership, working together for spiritual reformation. Reformation. Gospel partnership within a local church. Everyone playing their part. Gospel partnership in a city. Churches working together with a vision for this city of Edinburgh, for its spiritual reformation for the kingdom of God for the glory of God that is more concerned for that than for my church or my part in that a gospel partnership in a nation to see God's kingdom increase God's glory shine not to build my kingdom or empire or seek my glory or my reputation or my church's reputation One of the biggest threats we face in what are critical days for the church in the United Kingdom is rivalry amongst ministers especially, I guess. Rivalry between churches. Rivalry within churches in terms of leaders jockeying for power and position. If we cannot work together, we will not have the force of impact we should. Now, that's perhaps well illustrated for those of you who are undergraduate students. You together will undertake a work of spiritual reformation over the next week in this city. All the university CUs will gather together. You will not like everybody, and they will not like you. You will not think exactly the same as they do. Your priorities may be a little different, but if you stand shoulder to shoulder, side by side, for the vision of taking that gospel out into the universities, then the work will be far more effectively accomplished. Of course it will. Partnership, Does not mean setting aside clear gospel convictions. That's a lie. But partnership does mean people who have a shared vision work together for the greater good and for the glory of God in their time. Now, the challenges in our country are great, but there are signs of partnership. There are signs of people beginning increasingly to work together. But chapter 3 describes the partnership of all of God's people in rebuilding work or spiritual reformation. And it is far from a dull list of forgotten names. For one thing, the names aren't dull. But they're real people. They're ordinary people. They're like you and I, who all played their part in the spiritual reformation of the people of God in their day. And without this passage, you would not have known these names. They are a surviving reminder of in times of reformation, all of God's people put their shoulders to the work. The list of ordinary names means that Nehemiah, the leader, cared about the people. And the list of ordinary names means that God cared about the people and values and what they, they do. It is an authentic list. One of the features of it, if we had time, is that there are four names. Meshulam is one, and we meet him in verses 4, 6, and 30. And actually, we meet two Meshulams. And uh, if this was kind of made up, you would give them all different names. But it's not. They've got the same names, and Nehemiah has to distinguish them by where they come from and what they do. Now, let me draw a number of principles from this list. Number one is the leader's example. Nehemiah, we have already seen, led by example. The opening verses of chapter 3 tell us that alongside Nehemiah Eliashib the high priest and the rest of the priests take the lead chapter 3 verse 1 so the the leaders of God's people in his day are the ones who take the lead in the work of spiritual reformation and as you read through the old testament and the history of the people of God and as you look at the church today sadly it is more often the case that the leaders of God's people lead God's people away from God rather than lead them faithfully to God. Now, applying this to our context, we cannot make a straight-line application from priests, in particular the high priest in the Old Testament, to Christian ministers or elders in the New Testament. The equivalent of the high priest... In the Old Testament, Old Covenant is Jesus in the New Testament and New Covenant. He is the great high priest. He is the permanent high priest. He is the perfect sacrifice for sin. He is the perfect example to follow. He is the only prophet, the only priest, and the only king. Now, what that means for us is that Jesus... Is the leader of his church, universal and local. He leads the church in Scotland, in this city, in Chambers. He leads it by his perfect example and through his words, scripture. So we are to follow and submit to his rule. Chalmers Church is led by Jesus through his word. And the elders in a church lead, as Roger has reminded us, under Jesus. And their primary responsibility is to exercise leadership through teaching the word of God. So, woe betide a Christian minister in this city who stands behind a lectern this morning and preaches anything other than the Word of God. Woe betide an elder in a church who does not hold people to the authority of the Word of God. For what a minister does or an elder does, if they do not teach the Word of God, is take the scepter of rule out of the hand of the Lord Jesus and take it themselves. When there is reformation or renewal in the church, there will be more and more churches where the ministers call God's people to submit to the rule of Christ through his word. When there is reformation within a church, local, all across the church, small group leaders will call people to live under the authority of the word of God and Christ will rule his church. Which is why, as a church, We are committed to, as Roger has so clearly expressed, and I didn't tell him what I was going to say before he said that, I'm often astonished at the coincidences that God achieves on Sundays, which is why we need to do what we, by circumstance, are able to do, and that is to train People to lead churches who will lead them under Christ, under his word. What God may do with that in his enigmatic providence, we do not know. But we can do that, for the need is great. Secondly, builders' priority. Verses 1 to 3 tell us what the priority was in the rebuilding Work. Now, I searched for a map of Jerusalem to put up on the screen at this point for two reasons, to keep you awake if you had fallen asleep, but also to show you where the Sheep Gate is in Jerusalem on the basis that not many of you will know where the Sheep Gate is. The bit that they built first was the top of Jerusalem, the northern end. And the northern part of the wall was the bit of the wall that was completely erased to the ground because that's where Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem. And the Sheep Gate, it's called the Sheep Gate because you brought sheep through it to the temple to sacrifice. And if you wanted to get to the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God's presence was, you would go through the Sheep Gate. It's a 10-minute walk from the Sheep Gate to the temple. So that's where they begin to build first. What's the significance of that? Well, the significance of that, I think, broadly speaking, is that they put God first. The most important thing that drove them that they did first was to see God once again with his people and to see God's glory once again restored in Jerusalem, shining out as a beacon to the surrounding nations. The glory of God, the kingdom of God, the presence of God, were the priorities in the work of spiritual reformation. Let me give you a helpful New Testament reference. This might be helpful, Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. And that principle means putting God first in our lives and not being distracted by or worrying about things that don't much matter. I expect in the island of Lewis this morning, there won't be many people worrying about things that don't much matter. The only thing that matters ultimately in this life and in this world is men and women who invest their energies in seeking first the extension of the kingdom of God and the glory of God so that men and women will die in Jesus Christ and be safe. And what does it look like practically Well, it looks like the recovery of clarity on the gospel, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It looks like a recovery of commitment to the word of God, zeal in mission and evangelism, planting gospel churches, training gospel leaders. And I guess we would agree they are the priorities in the church in our day. But let me just jump back for a moment to Nehemiah 1. It is one thing to see them. It is another to feel them. And it's another to be moved to pray that God will pour his energies and spirit into that work of spiritual reformation. The most powerful words, I think, in the book of Nehemiah are at the end of chapter 1 when Nehemiah says, and God was in it. God was with us. God was in it. Now, third principle, collective responsibility. Nehemiah and the priests are clear they cannot do the work on their own. Spiritual leadership always involves, when it is well exercised, equipping and enabling and encouraging others. As I look back on my time as minister in Chalmers, I brought to a culture of kind of one-man ministry a culture in my own heart of one-man ministry and then realized that a church is far more effective when people are enabled and encouraged to flourish with the gifts God has given them. And that is true across a city, and it is true across a country. When we speak of the Christian faith, it is striking how much emphasis we give in our rhetoric, and indeed in what we sing, to the individual aspect of faith. Maybe 70% of the worship songs, and I'm not having a go at worship songs or hymns. They're the same. The best of the modern ones are fantastic. The worst of the old ones are dire. Every generation writes good stuff. But 70% of them have the pronoun I. But the Bible is dominated by we the people of God gathering together to worship. Being in a church is not primarily what we get out of it but what we give to it. Sometimes people move churches for good reasons. Some of you have come to this church from other churches and it's been right for all sorts of reasons. But when people say to me, I want to move to another church because I don't like this thing about it, then you've got to worry and question what they see church for. Church is about what we can give to it. It is a team effort in a time of reformation. There are to be no Lone Rangers there's a wonderful phrase in this text. It occurs 30-odd times, and next to. You hear that when we read it? And next to, and next to. and ne- What it means is literally shoulder by shoulder or cheek by jowl, right up against each other, working together for spiritual reformation. That's a great metaphor for the mission in this city this week among students, shoulder by shoulder. Standing beside each other, just to say as well that while the unity and collective commitment of God's people is important, the list is not monochrome. They're not robots. It's multicolored. There's a diverse group of people, each with their different gifts and parts to play. Some are goldsmiths. Some are perfumers. There's a lot of perfumers in Jerusalem, it seems, in the ancient world. Some are, well, there's a whole diversity. And in terms of application, there's a lot of New Testament passages about how the church is a body made up of all sorts of people. Teamwork. And teamwork requires, of course, team players. Now, let me express that more spiritually. Partnership requires fellowship. When we become Christians, we are reconciled not only to God but to one another. Partnership requires fellowship. And we're off to a good start. The Holy Spirit creates within us the ability to partner, to have fellowship with our fellow believers. But we so easily fall out in a church like this. We so easily fall out as ministers with other leaders. We so easily fall into the trap Of speaking ill of one another, pointing out the stylistic differences in different churches, rather than working together for the spiritual reformation of the city and the country. And of course, think of this list. Think of all these people. I mean, they built the wall in just a matter of over a month, they'd be working long hours, long shifts. Shoulder by shoulder. And I don't really think Nehemiah sat them all down and had a committee of who gets on with who and said, look, you guys have got type 2 personalities, you've got type 3. Well, do a little kind of personality test and we'll just make up little groups according to who gets on with each other. I don't think so. There would be people working on this little section of the wall who didn't like each other. They knew they might spend eternity together, but they didn't like each other. So it is in a church. Of course, we love each other. We love each other, but we don't find each other always easy. And beyond a church, different personalities, different gifts. Everybody stood shoulder to shoulder, grafting. Apart from, verse 5b, some of the nobles of Tekoa. Now, uh, Nehemiah sought to include this reference in what is a very encouraging chapter as a sign of the opposition to come. We will have a double dose of discouragement next Sunday and the Sunday afterwards, God willing, from the word of God, not from other circumstances. The flak begins to fly. Here's a little sign of it here the nobles from Tekoa verse 5b would not stoop to do the work. Pride was their problem. They had no intention of serving the Lord. They had no sense that the Messiah who one day would come would stoop to wash his own disciples' feet and lay down his life on a cross. Here's a Quotation from one of the Bible commentaries about the nobles of Tekoa. Their legacy is this note recorded in Scripture. It is a thought for sober reflection that this should have been said of them. In a time when the Spirit of God was so manifestly at work, when something of such magnitude and magnificence was being accomplished, would it not be better to be dead than to have it said of us that in a day of opportunity we had no part in the building of God's kingdom in the spiritual rehabilitation of church and nation. That's a strong comment. But imagine, well, there they are, these people recorded forevermore who would not play their part. Fourthly, servant-hearted, selfless commitment. Now, one of the striking things from this list of people is that they were not all from Jerusalem. So think of Edinburgh. Say we were rebuilding the walls of Edinburgh. And let me not use that illustration to confuse you. This is not a chapter about bricks and mortar. It's about spiritual reformation. But say we were building the walls of Edinburgh. What is happening here in Jerusalem is all sorts of people would come on the train or buses from other parts of Scotland to join in the work, even though they would go home at the end of the month and not see the fruit of their labors, apart from once or twice a year when they came on pilgrimage. I mean, there were people here, and the text tells us, who built bits of the wall opposite their front doors. Now, they would be motivated to do that. But there were people from Tekoa, Gibeon, Mispa, Zanawa, Beth, Hackerim, Benzer, Kela, all towns up to 50 miles away. And that's very striking, isn't it? People who invest in the kingdom of God who will never see the fruits of what they give. A good example of that is people who pray. So many of you will pray for countries and people in the world that you will never see. You'll never get a plane to see firsthand what's happening, say, in China. But you will pray. One day God will show you. Another example of sacrificial service here in this chapter is that lots of people, having completed their part of the wall, went on to work just as enthusiastically on another uh, section. Just to prove to you that I'm not making that up. Mishalum, verse 4, how do we rest? And then by verse 31, he's at it again. Somebody after the first service said, do these kind of people not annoy you? <laughs> what a thing to say. You can, you can see where he's coming from. You know, they're little keen beans. They're just always there. And it's striking, though. He did his bit, and then he went to do some more. <laughs> and then finally, motivation and reward. In fact, just let me go back a bit. I've got something else here in my notes that one of the striking things about this list too is that they weren't all particularly gifted as wall builders now maybe they were but I suspect the priests would be about as gifted at building walls as ministers would be gifted at building walls although Alistair is an exception to the rule one of our ministry associates if you need any building work he's your man what about goldsmiths verses 8, 31 and 32 I'm not sure there's much wall building goes on Perfume makers, merchants, and district rulers. You know, chief executives of local councils wouldn't be doing much wall building. They may do budgets for wall building, but not much wall building. What does this mean? It means that we must not hide behind, I am not particularly gifted for this work, not to engage in the work of spiritual reformation. Oftentimes, that leads us just not doing stuff. And I'm sure all around the walls, there were people who would encourage them in how to build them. Finally then, motivation and reward. Now, the very strong sense you get from this text is that the people were motivated and engaged in the work. That point is made in the previous chapter too. When they all cry, let us rise up and build. And, and, and it would be very easy for me to kind of motivate you all this morning. So we all stood up at the end and we sang, let us rise up and build. The proof, though, is in the pudding. They built the walls and that enthusiasm continued. In barely a month, the walls went up. It must have been an extraordinary sight of endeavor and enthusiasm and encouragement. What on earth motivated them? One, a sense of privilege they were glad and joyful in their work not happy it's different but glad privileged i am really happy as a minister but glad and privileged to be one and often that is true of us in our christian lives Being a Christian doesn't flood you with happiness or superficiality. It convicts you with joy and privilege and purpose. What motivated them? Two things. First, thanksgiving for what the Lord had done for them. Now, motivation by thanksgiving... Is not God has done that, so we need a great big guilt trip. It's not being motivated by thanksgiving. Being motivated by thanksgiving is to be motivated by a sense of the generous mercy of God, never by guilt. I think if any of us in Chalmers gives to the building projects out of guilt we should return all the money. It's not a good way to give. And let's not let the devil ever creep into our hearts and make us give to the work of the gospel in whatever ways we give out of guilt, gladness, thankfulness. God had restored them. God was with them. God was in it. God had saved them. Secondly, they were motivated by a desire to see the glory of God restored and God present with them again. So why did Nehemiah have a vision to rebuild the wall? Why did Ezra have a vision to rebuild the temple? Not so that they could have a plaque on the wall that said, Nehemiah's wall on Ezra's temple, so that what God had promised I will be with my people in the temple in Zion, in Jerusalem. This city will be a radiant lighthouse to the nations. So that could happen. That's why they rebuilt the temple. That's why they rebuilt the wall. Their desire, their vision was to see the glory of God in Zion, in Jerusalem. And they wanted God to be with them to be present. And of course, our motivation is the same. The great vision for spiritual reformation in this country, or in this city, or in this church, is to see the glory of God more, to see the kingdom of God advance, and to know God with us in a powerful way. God is in it. God is with us. That's what we see. And in doing so, our vision is to align our priorities with the priorities of God, and thereby the Spirit of God will be at work. Let me root this, though, into real day-to-day life. Here's another quote from a commentary on Nehemiah. Over the centuries, the work of Christ's church has been lovingly maintained by a vast army of women and men who were ready to do anything which would further God's cause. Cleaning, catering, magazine preparation, flower arranging, building repairs, home visiting, leaflet distribution, and scores of other tasks. Now, I would add to the list preaching, pastoring, and all the rest of it, because in excluding them, you kind of make them out to be different tasks. They're all the same according to our gifts. Preaching, pastoring, evangelism which will never be acclaimed this side of heaven, but they have been done for God's glory and other people's goods, and that is reward enough. That's true, isn't it? Now, that's chapter 3 of Nehemiah, and I have said nothing about a building because this is not about buying a building. Nehemiah is not a book you turn to when you have a building project. Because we are not giving money to buy bricks and mortar. What are we giving for at this juncture in our church life? We are giving money for the glory of God in this city. And so that we can do what we can do for this country. And something that will be there for generations to come. I guess, if I'm really honest, here we are as minister at a juncture in our church life. What we do by way of responding to what is in front of us, and I have no fears of speaking directly about that, will be a real gauge of our spiritual health and temperature. Of course, we need to give sacrificially, that means so it bites and generously because we love Jesus a great deal. But what concerns me more than, or as much as how much we give, is that every one of us gives. That's what I'm fearful doesn't happen, is that as a church at this juncture, we don't stand shoulder to shoulder to shoulder. So let me commend to you with all the right motivations the opportunity God has given us to invest in his kingdom for generations to come. And if we seek first his righteousness and his kingdom, everything else, everything else will be given to us that we need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the relevance of this passage today to our circumstances. We pray that you would lay upon all our hearts a willingness to stand shoulder to shoulder, whether we're students, elders, ministers, young adults, older adults. Whatever age and stage we are, we pray, Lord, that you would lay on all our hearts to seize the opportunities in our day and generation, and there are many beyond our own church, to see God's glory restored, to see the name of Jesus honored, to see gospel churches with faithful leadership teaching the word of God. Help us not to see reformation as something in the past. Or something in the future. Or something that somebody else does in another church. Or something that other people do in this church. Help us to hear your call and your commission for now. And we pray all that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.